you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15 with me as we continue to look at the parable that we call the parable of the prodigal son. And as you turn to Luke chapter 15, it begins in verse 11, I also encourage you to come back out this evening to Camp Good News as we continue our series on a study of God's Word, and we're going through some systematic theology, and we're going to be talking about, we've been talking about our doctrine of, of the Bible, of bibliology, and tonight we're going to continue something we ta- began talking about a few months ago as we began talking about the clarity of Scripture. We're going to need to be talking about how to study your Bible and how to be able to, to take God's Word that is written to us so that we can know Him and know how to live and talk about some ways that we can study it and understand it. And so I, I hope it's a very practical and encouraging time together this evening, and I hope to see you there at Camp Good News. And there's information about that in your bulletin, I believe, and if not on the website as well. So uh, Luke chapter 15, and if you would stand with me in honor of God, if you're able uh, this morning to, to read together, beginning in verse 11, we're going to look at the story that we call the parable of the prodigal son. Verse 11, Jesus is speaking, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me, and he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, 
You're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You may be seated, and may God encourage and strengthen us through his word this morning. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, we are sons who have returned, sons and daughters who have returned to you. We've been received back into fellowship with you. And Father, as we think about the reality of your, of your acceptance of us, we, we think about the, the need that, that we have to rejoice when others are brought into fellowship with you. Protect us. Protect us from hearts that reveal that we have not experienced your love and your forgiveness. Protect us from attitudes that that betray hard hearts. And open your word to us this morning, we pray, in your son Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in our fifth week of going through Luke chapter 15. And and Lord willing, this is going to be our our last week in Luke chapter 15 as, as we conclude this parable of the prodigal son. Uh, this study has been very encouraging for me, and I hope it's been encouraging for you as well. I've, I've learned some things uh, about God that I, I hadn't thought about deeply before. I've, I've relearned some things that I, I needed to be reminded of, and I hope that you've experienced the same as we've been looking at Luke chapter 15. In our first week of looking at this chapter, uh, you may remember we introduced the theme in the first couple of verses of Luke chapter 15, we see the, the story that sets up the stories that Jesus tells. Jesus has been approached by tax collectors and sinners. They want to hear what Jesus has to say. And the Pharisees and the scribes see these sinners approaching Jesus, and they see Jesus receiving them, and, and they're upset by it. They grumble about it. And we saw the first week that we looked at these parables in Luke chapter 15, kind of the main theme of the chapter, that being that you and I should rejoice when the lost repent. Whenever the lost repent and come to God, there should be rejoicing that takes place within our hearts and that is demonstrated by our actions. And that's what we looked at the first week. And then the second week, we looked at the first two parables. And and as we have continued throughout our series, we kind of keep on going back to that idea of how do we rejoice when the lost repent? What do we need to know to help us rejoice when the lost repent? What does it say about us when we don't rejoice when the lost repent? And the second week, as we saw these first two parables, we saw a shepherd rejoice when he found his sheep, and we saw a woman rejoice whenever she found a coin, and we saw that those objects had value for those people. And for us to rejoice when the lost repent, we have to see them as as valuable as God sees them. And if you and I don't rejoice whenever the lost are found, it means that we don't value the lost as we ought. The third week, we began looking at this parable that we call the parable of the prodigal son. And we, first of all, began to look at the younger son. And as we looked at the younger son, kind of the main idea that we grasped there is that it's God who grants repentance, and you and I should rejoice when repentance takes place. We saw that repentance takes place when a person intellectually understands that the activity that they're engaged in is sinful. They have an emotional response toward that sin. They no longer have a desire to continue in it, and they make a decision to turn from it. 
We saw that repentance and faith are very closely linked. For one to, to place one's faith in Jesus Christ, one, one turns away from sin and places one's faith alone in Jesus Christ alone for one's salvation. And we, we talked about the beauty of repentance and how we should rejoice when the lost repent. Repentance is something that God himself brings about in the heart of a person. And then the next week, the fourth week, we looked at the story that dealt, the part of the story that dealt with the father's reaction to that younger son. That was last week. And we saw that you and I, in order to rejoice like God rejoices, we have to love like God loves. God's love, based upon what we saw in the story about the father, God's love is extravagant. God's love is lavish. In some people's eyes, God's love is foolish, it's shameful, it's beautiful, and it's that type of love that we have to have for the lost if we're going to rejoice like God rejoices. Which brings us to this morning. Very often, when people talk about the parable of the prodigal son, they focus on the relationship of the father with that younger son. And the message that they say that this story is teaching is, they're saying, well, this story teaches us that we are sinners, and and when we're sinners, when we're down and out, we should turn to God because he'll always forgive us. That's kind of the, the main theme that most people focus on when they focus on this story. The message of the story then becomes, be like the prodigal son and repent and turn to God and he'll accept you. Now, is that a true state, statement? A- absolutely. But is that the main message of this parable? No, I don't believe so. You see, the main point of the parable becomes clear as we think about the parables that have preceded it and as we think about what takes place at the very end of the parable between the father and the older son. And what I want to encourage you with this morning is that as we look at the older son's reaction, we see what Jesus is trying to communicate through this story. Jesus is not saying, be like a a younger son and repent, although that's certainly an appropriate message. What Jesus is saying is not be like the younger son and repent. He's saying, don't be like the older son and seethe when you see people turn to God. I would suggest this. I would suggest that in this room at at Bethany Community Church, there are certainly younger sons, right? There are certainly people here this morning who who are just outright living in rebellion to God. But I would suggest also that far more common, far more common in this room are those of us who are struggling with older brotherism. In other words, our rebellion to God is not blatant. We're not going out and and saying, you know what, I I reject all of Christianity and I reject God and I I reject all the things that that, uh, this community of faith believes. Uh, I'm out of here. That happens, certainly. But more likely, what's taking place within the hearts of the people in this room is a struggle with older brotherism, with a distance and relationship with God that we may not even be aware is there. But here's the bombshell 
that we encounter as we conclude this parable. If you do not love the lost brother, if you are a person who does not love the lost brother, you do not love the father. If you do not love the lost brother, you do not love the father. If you do not love the lost brother and that love demonstrated in outwardly in rejoicing and celebration as the lost turn to God, don't kid yourself. You don't love the Father. It's a shocking message. It's a hard message, but I believe as we walk through this parable, as we conclude it, you're going to see that it's true. What I want to do then is I want to kind of spend just a couple minutes reviewing the story for those of you who uh, slept between last week and this morning, or those of you who are new to our church this morning, we want to kind of catch you up to speed, and then I'm going to talk through the rest of the parable, kind of unwrap that story together, and then we're going to talk about some principles of what it looks like to be a separated son. Well, as we mentioned, the the parable begins in verse 11, and Jesus says that there's a guy who has two sons, and so we're introduced to these three characters. And the story begins by the younger son going up to his dad and essentially saying, Dad, uh, I wish you would drop dead. Dad, uh, you are of more use to me dead than alive. I'd like my money. And then the shocking part of the story for many of the people in the audience is that the father goes along with what this younger son asks for. He gives this younger son the, the right to know what he's, what's coming to him when the father dies and the son takes this and he, he, he uh, takes this a share of his inheritance, he sells it off, and he begins to immediately pack up his things, and he leaves the house of his father. So here's this, this family unit, and the, the younger son is a part of this family unit. He goes up to the head of this family unit, and he shames him. He says, I wish you were dead. I want nothing to do with you. And then he, here's the family unit, here's the house, and he leaves the home. He's out of there as fast as he can, and he engages in a lifestyle of rejecting everything that his father holds dear, all his values, all his lifestyle. He says, I want nothing to do with that. I'm going to be as far away from you physically and morally as possible, and he squanders his father's inheritance in a far-off country, engaging in immorality and reckless living. And then, he hits rock bottom. And as he hits rock bottom, I love how the text tells us he, he comes to himself. He recognizes intellectually that this lifestyle that he's living is not the right lifestyle to live. He, he recognizes that he's in, in a dangerous place. He, he recognizes that, that parting with the pigs isn't this, this vision that he had had, had for himself when he, when he left father's house. And he recognizes, and here's the beauty of it, he recognizes that, that life in the presence of the father, even as a hired servant, is more wonderful, is more beneficial, has more joy than a life of independence with pigs. He comes to his senses, and he returns to his father. Now, as I mentioned last week, many people that were listening to Jesus as he told this story would have been, would have been kind of in agreement with the story in some ways up to this point. They would have been shocked by the father's behavior in giving his son this portion of his inheritance, but they would have been like, yeah, you know what? Whenever you leave dad's house, that's exactly what happens. You end up, end up in a pigsty trying to eat the pig's food. That's, that's exactly what should happen to a rebellious child. And then as they hear that the son has come to his senses, 
perhaps in their minds they're thinking, okay, uh, yeah, I can see how a father might receive his son back as a hired servant or on certain conditions. And what would have happened in their minds is the son would have returned and there would have been uh, some sort of uh, public shaming that he experienced because of the shame that he had brought upon his father. And, you know, he'd, he'd sit out in the town square and people would mock him. And then at some point the father would uh, deign to receive him and the son would fall before his father on his face. He'd kiss his sandals, and the father would act very standoffish, and and eventually some sort of relationship could be restored if the father was super-duper gracious and allowed the son to work to earn his favor again. But what happens in the story, as we saw last week, is that the father bears the shame of the son, and he runs before anyone else can meet the son. He sees him a long way off. He runs to meet the son, and he embraces, he initiates the embrace with his son. He kisses the son and immediately restores that relationship without the son bearing the shame. And he does it out of his compassion, we saw. Restores the son back into fellowship, and, and we saw that he throws a party. There's a celebration. There's this this lavish joy that's being exuded by all the participants. Which brings us to verse 25. And the third, and for our purposes, most important character in the story. What's going on with the older son? Jesus tells us that the older son is out working in the field. The Pharisees and the scribes, as they're introduced to this third character, must think, yeah, finally, finally someone with some sense. We have this younger brother that's that's just this wild child, and we have this dad that's that's acting in a shameful way. Now maybe there's this guy that's going to bring some honor to the family. And at first glance, this older son seems to be everything that his brother is not. He seems to be his brother's polar opposite. A younger son comes and demands inheritance. Older son stays silent in the story. Younger son leaves the father's house. Older son stays. Younger son engages in partying. Older brother works. And it seems like older brother is a polar opposite of younger brother. Now, it is a little bit strange as this party begins that the older brother isn't there, and maybe some of Jesus' audiences would have been a little confused by that. You see, in this culture, as Kenneth Bailey says, I mentioned Kenneth Bailey and his work on this parable, some of the uh, studies that he's done on this culture. Kenneth Bailey suggests that in this culture, an older son had kind of a semi-official responsibility at a party, at a celebration. The expectation would have been that the older brother would have been there, he would have been mingling with the guests, he would have made sure everyone's happy and has enough to eat, and yet the older brother strangely isn't there. He's out working in the field. And as he comes back from working, and as he comes closer and closer to the the family house, as he begins to approach it, he, he hears music. And he comes a little bit closer to the house, and he, and he hears dancing and celebrating, and he's not sure what's going on. He doesn't know what would cause his father to throw this type of a party, which again should tell us something. And furthermore, instead of asking his dad what's going on, he finds a servant and calls him over and says, hey, what, what's going on? And the servant says something, look at the text there, the servant says something that tells us quite a, quite a lot, 
some significant things. This is verse 27. And he said to him, look, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. I think in these words we hear a little bit of the servant's take on this situation. You know, uh, your dad has received your brother back, and we're kind of surprised by that, frankly, among the servants. We had kind of a bet going to see whether or not he would die by wild beasts or by someone stabbing him to death. And it's kind of surprising to us, frankly, that your brother is alive at all and back. And it's shocking to us. You need to, your dad is, he's received him. He just got back and we're, we're throwing him a party. And, and he's healthy. He's well. He has that word safe and sound means it's well-being. And why can the servant say that? Why doesn't the servant say, yeah, your brother's back. We're surprised that he's alive, but his clothes are in tattered. No shoes. I mean, the, the dude looks bad, but we all saw this coming, right? Now, what does the brother say? Or what does the, the servant say? He says he, he's received him back, and he's safe and sound. He's, he's healthy. There's well-being here, and he's able to say that because the father has borne the shame for the son, and the father has extravagantly provided in his love for the older son. Okay, now remember what's happened in Luke 15 so far. A sheep goes missing, it's found, shepherd rejoices. A coin goes missing, it's found, woman rejoices. Son goes missing, father finds son rejoicing. Brother goes missing, Brother found, older son responds with what? Anger. He seethes. There's this fury that he has as he hears that a lost brother has been found. It's the first such response in the chapter. text tells us, verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in. Don't miss the significance of that phrase that he refused to go in. In this culture, to refuse to go into a party that your father was throwing was, was an insult to your father. So here's the picture. There's, there's this house, there's this, this home in which both brothers live. One son strays. One son leaves the house and goes off and engages in all sorts of wild living and, and then comes back and is received back into the home. Now at this moment, the older brother who has stayed comes back and now he is standing outside the home, refusing to enter it again because his younger brother is in that home. And he's angry that dad has let younger brother back in, and he's angry that there's a party going in there for him. And so he voluntarily, intentionally, angrily refuses to enter into his father's presence, thus shaming his father and registering his disapproval with his father's conduct. You see, younger brother wild child isn't the only one who can dishonor dad. 
And then dad does something that's also shameful. This dad is a glutton for punishment. He leaves the house, and instead of coming outside and saying, how dare you treat me this way, he comes out, and what does he do? It says that he entreated him. He, he pleaded with him. The idea here is that there's this re- repeated invitation, come back inside, come back inside, come back, come on, come on. Hey, come on, there's, there's your favorite foods in there. Come on, let's go in there. What are you doing? Come on. No, no, I understand you're upset, but you know, all your friends are in there. Let's go. The whole village is celebrating this. Please, please, come on. It's a beautiful thing in there. This isn't fun out here. Listen to how the older brother responds. It says, verse 29, after his father entreated him, but he said, look, by the way, by beginning with the word look, instead of beginning with father, you know, if you look back throughout the chapter, or from verse 11 to now, as you look at what the younger brother said, you know, the younger brother insulted dad pretty bad, but, but he always began, father, father, there's some sort of respect. Basically, what the older son is saying here is, look, you jerk. Look, you fool, you old man. Look, I, doesn't address him respectfully, look, these many years I have served you. I've been like your slave. And I've never disobeyed your command. Yet, even though I've obeyed you perfectly, even though I've been like your little slave boy, you never gave me a young goat. You know, you give him this fattened calf, a goat's worth almost nothing. You don't even, you don't even give me a stinking goat. You give him a steak dinner, you won't even buy me McDonald's. Not that McDonald's isn't a wonderful restaurant establishment. <laughs> that I could celebrate with my, my buddies, my pals. I've been stuck with you. You and I, our relationship has really stunk. And now, so he tells that to dad, and then he he brings younger brother into it, younger son. He says, yet this guy, this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours, you guys with this relationship, not me, I've distanced myself from him. He comes home, he's devoured your property with prostitutes, and you kill the fattened calf for him. In other words, look, there's this competitive relationship. I'm looking at how you treat him and how you've treated me, and this ain't right. In the brother's response here, it reveals quite a few things about his brother's heart, about this older son's heart condition. What does it reveal? It reveals that this this older brother hasn't loved his father, but he's served him. It reveals that there is not a relationship between the older son and his father. It reveals that that the older brother has a very high opinion of his own obedience. It reveals that the older brother believes his father is guilty of injustice. It reveals that he's, he's demanding justice. It reveals that he lacks confidence in his father's love. It reveals the older brother doesn't have a relationship with the father. He stands outside the house, 
refusing to enter into relationship with dad, older, younger brothers in partying. Now listen to the dad's response. Dad has come out, he's entreated with him, and he gives this last-ditch effort to restore this relationship with older brother, older son. He responds differently than his son responded. He begins by addressing him, son. Son, you're always with me. There shouldn't be this, this breach in our relationship because you're always right here in the home. All that I have is, is yours. Me allowing your brother to come back in and restore a relationship with me materially harms you not at all in terms of your inheritance. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. It was, it was fitting, it was, it was right for the occasion. As one commentator says, this is not the time to talk about fairness and justice. This is the time to be happy. This, your brother, not just my son, but your brother, he, he was dead. He was as, as good as dead to us by his own decision to leave the home. Now he's alive. And the proper response right now is to rejoice. He was lost and is found. The question for us as we end this part of the parable is how is the older brother going to respond to what his dad has just said? What is his, what is his response going to be as his dad has said these difficult words to him. There's a huge irony here. Irony can be a very ugly thing. It can be very ugly. This, uh, this last week, uh, Whitney and I went to uh, a conference, and we, we had to fly to this conference. We, we got on, you know, flying out of Peoria isn't the easiest thing. We had to take two flights to get there and then two flights back. So we were on a total of four airplanes. And before we got on the first airplane, or as we're sitting down in our seats, I, I uh, lectured Whitney. I said, now, sweetheart, I understand all about travel. And um, flight attend- these, these flight attendants, they, they can be kind of tricky. Uh, they're going to tell you to turn off all your electronic devices, and they mean it. I, I just want you to be safe here, and I want you to get fussed at by the flight attendants. We got on four planes. I got fussed at every single flight by the flight attendants. And they were just right on me. And I looked at Whitney after the last one and said, well, that was ironic. That's not how I envisioned this going. But I got in trouble for seats being down. I got in trouble for shutting off my computer at the wrong time. I mean, I was just like the problem child of the plane, all right? Irony can be very unpleasant sometimes. Here's the irony of ironies in this story that's, that's, a, that's very unpleasant for us to think about. The irony in this story is that the son who stayed, by by the end of the chapter, the son who stayed in the home is more distant from his father than the son who strayed. The son who strayed at the end of the chapter is inside his father's home, enjoying the closeness of fellowship. The son who, who stayed, who should be the closest to the father, is the one who is revealed has no relationship with dad at the end of the story. That's ironic. It's not what you would expect 
to be true. And the danger to you and the danger to me is that uh, sometimes the people who are most distant to God are not the people who've lived sinful lifestyles that the world will go, oh yeah, that's a sinful lifestyle. I see that person engaged in this activity. That's sin, clearly. Sometimes the people who are most distant from God are the people who never left the church. Sometimes the people who are most distant from the Father are those who have sat in the pew, have sat in the theater seating at the church their entire lives. That's a scary thought. But it's the message of Luke 15 that you and I should rejoice when the lost repent. And a lack of rejoicing, a lack of joy, the things that God finds joyful, reveals that we're separated from our Father. It reveals that we don't have a relationship. If you do not love the lost son, if you don't rejoice when the lost son is found, you don't love the Father. Let me give you six things to think about here as we think about characteristics of the separated son. Six characteristics as we think about the the separated son. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we could talk about as we think about the older son, as we think about whether or not we fall into his his shoes. But I want to focus just on this idea of relationship with God and and what this distant relationship with the father looks like for the older son, and then what a, a distant relationship with God the father looks like for those of us who struggle with older brotherism. Number one, the separated older son, number one, removes himself from the father's presence. A separated older son will remove himself or herself from the father's presence. And, and so he, here in the parable, what we see at the beginning is this, this, as we look at the older brothers, this physical distance between himself and, and dad. And he's, he's not at the party. He's, he's ignorant of his father's activity. He's ignorant of the things that his, his dad is passionate about, the things that his dad is involved in. As Tim Keller writes, he says, the, the hearts of the two brothers were essentially the same. Both sons resented their father's authority, and both of them sought ways of getting out from under it. The separated older son, even though he's physically with his dad at times, finds ways to remove himself from his father's presence and and isn't aware of the things that his dad is involved in or excited about and is unaware of the things that bring his father joy. If you're an older brother, if you're an older brother, you claim to be in the church, you claim to be in the faith, in Christianity, and yet, by your actions, you demonstrate that there is a distance between you and your heavenly Father. If you're a person who's an older brother or struggling with older brotherism, you are a person who finds yourself involved in church activities, finds yourself in, and yet at the same time finds yourself lacking engagement with the things of God. You find prayer very burdensome. There's not a joy in the anticipation of being able to to commune with God in fellowship. You find that the, the company of saints tiresome, wearisome, not something that you, you, you 
desire to be involved in. You find engagement in the ministry of the life of the church something that, that doesn't bring you joy either. You find spending time in, in God's Word an activity that, that has no appeal for you. Why? Because you're in the Father's house, you're associated with the Father's house, but you have no relationship with the Father. If you're an older brother, a separated older son, you find ways to remove yourself from your Father's presence. Secondly, second characteristic here, a sign that the older brother is distant from the father. Number two, the separated older son lacks concern for his father's honor. He lacks concern for his father's honor. We've, a few weeks ago, we looked at Malachi chapter 1. And in Malachi chapter 1, we see that the, the people of Israel are engaged in religious activity, but they are separated from the things of God. In Malachi chapter 1 verse 6, God says, a son honors his father, and a servant his master. And then God says, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who, who despise my name. And then he talks about the ways that the priests and the people have engaged in, in failing to bring him honor. A person who loves their dad desires to see their, their dad honored. A few weeks ago, uh, my daughter and, and uh, Tony Carbaugh's daughter are both playing soccer together, and uh, Tony's uh, the coach, and I'm the assistant coach, and uh, Tony couldn't be there one uh, Saturday for a game, and, and I took on the reins as head coach, interim head coach, but I, I use the title head coach. But anyway, um, I'm the guy, right? And I hear uh, my daughter and Tony's daughter talking as I'm kind of uh, around the corner, and, and uh, Tony's daughter says, um, I like my dad as coach better. Uh, he's, he's a better coach than your dad. Not in a mean way, just like factually. And, and Ellie, Ellie goes, mm, I like my dad. You know, and so uh, I'm talking to Ellie later, and she goes, Daddy, I like you. I think you're the best coach. I said, no, actually, uh, actually Mr. Carbaugh is, is the better coach. Um, but I'm better looking. So you, can, you got that. <laughs> you got that going for you. But, you know, uh, what is a, a young kid, a young, my dad's great. My dad's wonderful. I love my dad, and, and sometimes unrealistically. But uh, there are great things that, that have son or a daughter believe about their dad when there's this closeness of relationship. They're excited about their father's honor. The older son, he doesn't care, does he? Yeah, whatever. I'm just concerned about getting what's mine. If you're a separated older son from the father, you're not concerned with your heavenly father's honor. The idea of God's glory being manifest in your life doesn't motivate you. The idea that, that God's name could be profaned by your actions doesn't really cross your mind. It, continuing in that, that chapter in Malachi, in Malachi chapter 1, at the very end of the chapters, he's talking about how you've, you've, these people have uh, profaned his name. He says in verse 14, he says, Cursed be the cheat who has a, a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. In other words, he promises something big and delivers this, this junky sacrifice saying, oh, God will be happy with that. God will like that. Yeah, I know that, that all that I own is, is God's and I know that everything that I have that's a physical possession belongs to God, but I'll just give him a little something. I'll, I'll throw in a five in the offering plate. I know that every moment of my life is, is God's, but when it comes to spending time with my friends, talking with them about God, I like 
I'll mention God's name maybe once, occasionally. I know that God has has called me to be a a dad that engages in the lives of my children in order to point them to God, but I'll just I'll just pray with them once a week or so before bedtime, or we'll say some, some quick little prayer. I won't really think about how to disciple my children and help them know and love and honor God. You see what I'm saying? In our lives, we sometimes believe that it's not incumbent upon us to glorify the name of our Heavenly Father. And as we do that, we reveal that we're separated from the Father, and we lack a concern for his name. He, Malachi concludes this first chapter. He says, God speaking through him, for as he talks about these terrible sacrifices, these pathetic offerings, he says, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God's name is a great name, and those who are his children are going to be passionate and, and, and driven by the desire to see God's name glorified. The older son in this parable has no concern with dad's honor, ultimately, and so feels no desire to preserve the honor of his father. Younger son shames and repents. Older son shames father and does nothing that we know of. A third sign, and I believe this is perhaps one of the most important things to think through this morning, a third sign that the older brother is distanced from his father is the separated older son obeys, obeys, but resents his father's instructions. The separated older son obeys, but he resents his father's instructions. You know, have you ever watched someone in a relationship with someone else, and things look okay on the outside, but as you you watch them interact, you're like, something seems off. I can remember being a a kid at a, I can be a young kid at our family reunion, and uh, there was a, a couple who, after the reunion, announced that, that they were getting divorced, and I talked to my dad about it. I said, boy, that's, that's terrible. I, I had no idea. He goes, yeah. He said, I saw some things in the way that they interacted with one another that, that made me uncomfortable. I can remember him saying this to me. He said, uh, sometimes they would say things like, uh, pass the salt, sweetheart, and you bet, dear, and the way in which they formed their community, there was like a, this, this kind of a disdain that they had for one another. And, and what we see in this, this older brother is we see obedience, right? But the type of obedience that he's engaged in makes this very uncomfortable. Four things I want you to notice about his obedience here. The first of all, you see duty trumps relationship. Duty trumps relationship. This is, there's this work-based relationship with with. with with dad that causes him to believe that he's being obedient to God, and and yet because the obedience is based upon obligation as opposed to relationship, it's empty. In Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. In other words, their, their hearts doesn't engage in the desire for obedience. It's, it's, it's lip service and, and head service, but the obedience isn't motivated by a love for God. Are you a separated older son? You say, no, Daniel, I read my Bible. I, I engage in ministry. I love God. Yeah. Is your duty based upon relationship 
Or is your obedience based upon duty or upon relationship? Duty in this, rela- in this scenario trumps relationship. That's one thing to notice here about this obedience. A second thing to notice about this obedience of the older son that shows that he's separated from dad is that his obedience, his obedience produces pride. His obedience produces pride. He looks at his dad, and, and as he's talking to his dad, he says this. He says, um, I never disobeyed your command. I never disobeyed your command. I obeyed you perfectly, and, and because of that, you owe me. It produces pride within the older son. Jesus will later say in Luke 17, 9, he says, uh, whenever a, a servant obeys his master, does the master thank the servant? No, he doesn't thank the servant. And in verse 10 of Luke 17, Jesus says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, you say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what we were supposed to do. That's the right heart response as a person in a close relationship with the father, does what the father says to do. The son doesn't say, Dad, I did what, exactly what I was supposed to do. Now, let's talk about what you owe me. Let's talk about how great I am. This duty, this duty, this obedience produces pride within this son. It causes him to exaggerate even the level of his obedience. A third thing to notice here about obedience is this obedience that kind of makes us squirm as we see the relationship between the older son and the father is that this son views obedience as a means to get stuff from dad. You see that? He says, look, I've obeyed you. This is in verse 29. I've obeyed all that you've said to do, and yet you've never given me anything. Doesn't that strike you as a little odd? He's revealing that his obedience to his dad was not based out of a relationship. He says, look, I've been obedient to you so that I could get what I want. The younger son pursues materialism one way. The older son pursues materialism to see what he can get from his father a different way. Do you see that? The younger son is more blatant in his disobedience and rebellion and seeing dad as this object to gain material things. The older son is a little more, uh, a little more subtle about it. But they both are pursuing the same thing. The younger son by rebellion, the older son by obedience. He pursues this materialistic goal in a subtle way. Uh, Francis Chan was one of the speakers at the conference I I went to, and he told this story about a a couple in his church, a couple in their their 60s. Uh, Their names, I I believe, were uh, Irene and Domingo, I I believe, were were their names. And uh, he talked about how at the beginning of, of uh, the relationship, or maybe at least whenever he was introduced to them, uh, Irene and Domingo were in a very uh, abusive relationship. In fact, uh, Irene would sometimes, he said, uh, when she would pray that God would, would kill Domingo. He would, like, she would know where he's driving and say, okay, like he's, he's right along this, this part of the highway. Lord, uh, this would be a great time for an earthquake or something to, to, to kill him. Can you imagine that relationship? Not good. 
And he says God got a hold of this couple and got a hold of their hearts and transformed them in some amazing ways. He said that this couple began getting engaged in in, uh, ministry. They placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They became Christians. They placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their their salvation. And then God transformed them in incredible ways. And one of the ways that he transformed them was not just in their relationship, but in their desire for ministry and to serve others. The limit of number of foster kids you can bring in your home is, is six, and this couple had 11 kids in their home at the time, and uh, Francis Chan said that they kept on pestering the state, give us more, give us more, and the state's like, look, we've given you 11, the limit's six, what more do you want? And this couple pursued this ministry not out of obligation, not out of, well, we used to be so bad, now we'll be good, and maybe things will kind of even out. Their obedience to God and their desire to minister to the least of these was not motivated out of a desire to to pay God back or or to somehow get things from God. They loved being obedient. They took great joy in the opportunity to be obedient to God. There was a real and a vibrant relationship. An older brother says, okay, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and get stuff. If I live my life this way, God has to treat me this way. You know, we've talked many times about the health and wealth gospel movement. The idea that you believe that if you do certain things, God will bless you materially. And and most of us in here, I think, would say, yeah, that's ridiculous. I reject that. But you know what? Sometimes I think, I realized this last week about myself as I was thinking through this message. I wonder sometimes if one of the reasons that I react so strongly against the health and wealth gospel movement is I see seeds of it in my own heart. Older brotherism. Parts of me believe that if I just act the right way and do the right things, then God will have to treat me the way I want to be treated. I'll get the fatted calf. That reveals a lack of relationship. Another thing to notice here about obedience that makes me uncomfortable is that the obedience is viewed as enslavement. You see that? How does the older brother talk about his relationship with dad? He says, I've served you. You've been like the slave master. I've been stuck here in your presence acting like your slave." Obedience is viewed as slavery. They don't rejoice in obedience. The older brother doesn't. The older son. So the separated older son, we see this this separated relationship as he he, uh, removes himself from from his father's presence emotionally. He he lacks concern for his father's honor. He, He obeys, but as he obeys, the separated older son resents his father's instruction. There's not joy in that relationship with his father that motivates obedience. And then a fourth thing to notice here is that the the separated older son questions his father's love. He questions his father's love. You struggle with knowing whether or not God loves you. There's a potential that you're struggling with older brotherism. Let me tell you a little bit about how pathetic I am. Uh, for those of you who are new, I 
share this all the time, things like this. But um, this is a room of safety, so I trust that no one's going to make fun of me for this. But um, I don't trust that, actually. Um, our first date with uh, myself and uh, Whitney, so it worked out well. Um, but our first date, um, I, I lacked a lot of confidence in this relationship. I thought, I thought what is this beautiful girl uh, doing with me? Uh, I don't know how this is going to go. And so we went out to uh, Chisholm Park there in Bedford, Texas, and we, we uh, had a little picnic, and we passed around the Frisbee, just had a great time talking and stuff. And then we got in the car, we're driving home, I said, um, hey, um, if you don't want me to ask you out again, just let me know. Like, <laughs> like I've had a good time, but like, if you didn't, I mean, I'm cool. Just tell me. Leave me. I get it. Like, I, I wouldn't enjoy spending time with me either. <laughs> Pretty pathetic, right? Um, you can ask Whitney whether or not that's true. She'll tell you it's, it's true. So, uh, <laughs> so she said, yeah, it has been kind of boring. No, she said, uh, yeah, I guess you can ask me out again. Um, now, imagine, I don't even know how many years ago was that. How many years? It was a long time ago. We've been married for uh, almost 13 years now. Imagine if I still did that every day. Hey, Whitney, it's been a great day. But if you want me to leave you alone tomorrow, just, <laughs> I understand. A, as a relationship develops, there's security in that relationship. The older son has been with his dad, and yet he questions his father's love. The fifth thing we see here, the fifth thing, is the separated older son competes for his father's affection. It's a zero-sum game for him. Uh, I, I love verse 31. Verse 31 has probably given me the most pause of any verse in uh, chapter 15 as I've been thinking through, what is, what is the dad saying to him about all that, that is mine is yours? And, and I'm not, I, I believe that what he's saying is, is essentially this, um, you suffer no loss from my generosity to your brother. So often, we as Christians view ourselves in competition with other Christians. If that person receives recognition, I should receive recognition. They're, they're getting more recognition than me, or they're getting more attention than I am, or God is being more gracious to them, more loving to them. He's giving them this and not giving me this. He's giving them this family and not me this family. He's giving me, them this uh, relationship and not this relationship with me. I, I, what, what's the deal? And so it becomes this competitive thing. That's not the sign of a healthy relationship, is it? That's the sign of an unhealthy relationship. And the separated older son reveals his lack of relationship with his dad by competing for dad's affection. What the dad is saying is, look, as I embrace this son, it does nothing to you. You suffer no loss in your inheritance from me welcoming your brother back. Everything's already yours. Get over it. The final thing that we see here about the separated older son is that the separated older son seethes at his father's grace. He's angry at the fact that his father is a gracious father. It bothers him deeply to see his father engage in this type of graciousness. I want to close by reading a little bit from Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, you have the, sto the story of the laborers in the vineyard. And, and these, these laborers come into the vineyard and they enter at different times of the day. And at the end of the day, the, the master of the house pays them all the same. And the people who worked at the beginning of the day are very upset by that. And this is what 
the master says, he says, take what belongs to you and go. I, I choose to give to the last worker as I, um, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. We're, we're concluding Luke 15 this morning by God's grace. And what I want us to understand at Bethany Community Church is that if we don't love the lost, we don't love the Father. We're kidding ourselves. And that love for the lost must manifest itself in rejoicing as the lost repent, welcoming them in, receiving them. The danger that exists to the hearts of people who have been obedient is that we become these legalistic, self-righteous older brothers that have all the appearance of being inside the house, but when push comes to shove, stand outside the home, seething at God's grace and generosity. May God give us the grace to truly love him and our love for him be transformed in the way that we respond to those who are lost. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your generosity toward us. We thank you that you've received us as sons and daughters. And, and now, Lord, if, if that is truly true of us, if we've, we've placed our faith in your son Jesus and we've received eternal life through faith, God, allow our hearts to continue to be transformed by your grace that we respond with joy as we see others. And, and may that response of joy motivate us, motivate us to action as we care for others and proclaim the good news of your son Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.